A special greetings and good morning to uh, all of you who are down in the bottom section. And then about five minutes from now, I'll greet all the rest of the people that come in and sit up in the balcony. <laughs> so I'm just going to wait. It's, still, it's a little early yet. But for those of you who are up already, good morning. Um, it's with uh, mixed emotions that I um, want to make an announcement. This afternoon, uh, there'll be a memorial service here at Calvary for Alan Smith. Uh, Alan and Carmen Smith have been uh, longtime members of Calvary Church. Alan had served on the Board of Elders for the past five years. In the past three and a half years, he was uh, chairman of the trustee board. Uh, but uh, he, he went home to be with the Lord this past week. So that's what the mixed emotions are. We know where he is is a lot better than we are. Um, but where his family is and the rest of his friends and all the rest, uh, they have to uh, go through that loss. So this afternoon, the memorial service is at 2 o'clock. Everyone is invited um, as part of a church family, and then there'll be a reception immediately afterwards here on the uh, church grounds. So if you can make it, I'm sure that that would be appreciated. Have you ever noticed how often it, it, it's so easy to get caught up in the excitement of the moment? You know, you kind of, those times in life where, you know, the emotions are running high and people just tend to get caught up in what's going on around them. And, and you see that oftentimes, we see it often. Uh, yesterday, uh, we started the day with a baseball game our son played in, and then the afternoon was a soccer game our daughter played in. And, and you see that pretty often in sports where people just get caught up in the excitement and the fervor of the moment. Uh, you see it in picket lines. Uh, you see it in other forms of protests. And uh, people can just get hung up and caught up in what's going on around them and kind of get caught up in the emotions. And uh, a story I heard not too long ago, I think will probably illustrate it best. Uh, there was two guys and a friend who had gone to a train station. And uh, while they were there, they realized that the train that they were gonna take was late in leaving. So they went to the coffee shop and they spent some time together and they're visiting and they're drinking coffee. And you know, one thing led to the other. And, and all of a sudden, one of the guys thought that he heard the announcement that it was the last boarding for that particular train and it was going to leave. And by the time they got the waitress' attention, they got the check, they paid the bill, the three of them go running out onto the platform and two of them take off and one guy's not quite as fast as the other two. And they go running to the end of the platform and two guys jump on the very last car, they get on the train and the last guy, he sees he's not going to make it, he just stops and he kind of bends over, catching his breath and he starts cracking up laughing. And a guy came up to him and said, what are you laughing about, sir? Did you just miss your train? He goes, yeah, I just missed my train. He said, well, what's so funny? He goes, well, the funny thing is the two guys that jumped on the train, they just drove me to the train station to see me off. <laughs> I was like, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, I think it's a guy thing. You know what I mean? It's one of those guy things. Isn't it that com competitive spirit? It's like, oh, there goes the train. I want to see if we can beat you to the train. It's, it's just one of those things, you know, and, uh, and so some of us who are, are prone to be a little more competitive can relate to that, uh, but as you can tell, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the excitement and the emotions of the moment, but uh, one of the things that happens often in interpersonal relationships is that there's a lot of emotion involved in that as well, and it's easy to get caught up in the emotions of it and not realize what the depth of that relationship really entails. And so what we're going to take a look at today in our concluding session of the book of Ruth is uh, the reason for marriage or the reasons for marriage. And what we're going to find out as we look at this particular study is that, you know, there's, there's more to a relationship than just love. Although love is a, a, is a strong motivating factor behind relationships, we're going to find that there's more to relationship than just love. 
There's more to a relationship than just mere emotions. That actually there's a, the C word, commitment, and also that there's action that takes place. If you truly love someone, then you'll act on their behalf. And what we find throughout this, uh, this study that we've gone through is that Boaz is a man who has a deep love for Ruth, and because of this love, he, he, he acts upon that love. He, he's ready to make a commitment because of his love. And if you'll recall in our last session together, uh, Ruth and Boaz finally make it to the chapel. Uh, they, so to speak, they make it to the chapel, they get married, they make that commitment, and uh, Ruth had claimed Boaz as her redeemer. If you recall, on the night of the threshing floor, she claimed him to be her redeemer, and uh, it gave him the freedom to go ahead and complete her redemption. And Boaz was motivated by love for a woman who, frankly, even in her own words, if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Ruth chapter 2 for a second. But Boaz is motivated to, for a love for this woman that even in her words, she realizes that, you know what, she doesn't deserve to be loved like this man wants to love her. And in Ruth chapter 2, in uh, verse 10, we see these words that illustrate what she felt about her relationship to Boaz. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to Boaz, she says, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What a wonderful picture of humility and understanding that, you know what, as a Moabitess, as a person who was despised by God's people and by God's laws and was excluded from the people of God, here was this man, Boaz, who frankly just was motivated because he loved her so deeply. And she was blown away by this kind of love. She's like, man, you know, who am I that you would take notice of me? And as I was reading through this and looking at this whole relationship between them, you know, I couldn't help but think about the fact that what a wonderful picture that is of God's love for you and I. And her response so beautifully illustrates the reality of a person who understands what kind of love God is reaching out to share with us. What she said was, who, who am I that you would notice me? And I believe that any one of us who have an intimate relationship with God, there has to be a point in our lives where that... that that awareness of the fact that we are not worthy to be loved by such a God. God, who am I that you would notice me? You know everything about me. You know my past. You know my background. You know the things that I've done in my life. You know things that I've done or thought or said that maybe nobody else even knows. But you know all about me and yet you still love me. Oh, man, who am I to find such, and this is what she says, to find such grace, grace, unmerited favor. Who am I to find that favor? You know, Ruth is just blown away by this. And it's easy to understand why so many people in our culture today don't understand God's grace. They don't understand how God, yet while they are sinners, that God can still love them. They think somehow if I change and if I clean up my act and if I get better and I stop doing certain things and I start doing better things, that if I can just do those things, somehow or another, I'll earn this favor with God. And see, that's not what grace is at all. Grace is loving someone despite the way they really are because you just feel like loving them and it's your prerogative to do it. 
And so that's why it's so hard when you share with people that God loves them, is that we, we are so, it's so unnatural in our world because people don't love us that way. They love us if we can benefit them. They love us if we do what they want us to do. Their love for us is always predicated upon our performance. And many of us who grew up in environments like that are guilty of, of, of sending that same mixed emotion or mixed message to our children and people around us. If you do good in your baseball game, I'll really love you. If you do good in your soccer game, boy, we'll really be proud of you. If you do good and get good grades in school, boy, then we'll go around bragging about you and tell people about you. But if you don't, you might not mention in what your last name is. See, it's kind of that way sometimes. And so we're not, we're not really, we don't know how to respond to someone who would love us despite the way we are. And so what she's saying is, who am I? And what I'm saying is, who am I? And I would hope that what you're saying is, who am I? God, that you would extend such favor on me because it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us would boast. All that Ruth had to do was receive this grace or this favor that Boaz extended to her. Her only responsibility was to accept that love. Her only responsibility was to claim Boaz as her redeemer. And you know, the message is still the same today. All that we have to do is respond to God's gift of love by just accepting it. All we have to do to have a right relationship with God is just to claim Jesus Christ as our redeemer. That's really the, the, the foreshadow of this story is to foreshadow what God would do in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at this, we see that there's a commitment that's going to take place here. And basically what Ruth did was she accepted Boaz's love and his gift of redemption. And she also, and it's important I think to understand and to, and to mention this in the context of what I'm talking about, but there was also a very specific time and a very specific day that she claimed Boaz as her redeemer. There was that night on the threshing floor when she went to specifically respond to his love by saying, I want you to be my redeemer today. You know, there are many of us who don't understand that. You know, when I was asked at one point in time in my life, well, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, when did you become a Christian? What is this, a trick question? <laughs> I don't know. I've always believed in God. I don't know. I've gone to church. And I'm, man, I was fishing, baby. I was like, is that one going to work? No, that's not working. How about, hey, baptized? Nope, that's not going to work either. Hey, confirmed? Nope, that's not doing it. I don't know. See, the problem is, and the question that was posed to me, I posed to you as well, anytime that you make any major decision in life, it's very rare that you don't remember when you did it. I'll bet you even some of you in here as more mature members of this particular audience and that may have been married for quite some time, probably, well, at least I know that the, 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 uh, the woman will, will remember where you were when what? First met, that's a good one. That's not bad. Oh, said I love you. Now see, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Do you even have a clue? Yeah. <laughs> see, no, you know, see, that, that's, not, that's not the big thing I was looking for here. Well, what, what am I looking for? How about when you, at least when you pop the question. 
when I loved you, said I loved you. I don't even want to get into this. Yeah, you better not. I don't think you do either. But, I mean, don't you remember? I mean, when you make a major decision like that, didn't you remember where you were when you asked your future wife to be, or, or husband to be, depending on who asked who, but, uh, but don't you remember where you were? Well, of course you do. And you can't make major decisions like that uh, without remembering where you were. And so the irony to me is, is that we run into people often who, when you ask them, well, when did you claim Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, your Redeemer? And, and you got, well, if, if you don't really know and you're not really sure, then you know what? You can take care of that business today. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through it. Anyway, if you've got your Bibles, let's uh, turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. And we will conclude the study in the book of Ruth. You've been part of history. There has been day, there has been sessions actually where we did two sessions in a row where we did a whole chapter in one session. So, you know, congratulate yourselves because that is a record. And we're going to finish it up today with these last uh, verses, starting with verse 13. <clears throat> we read, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in all of Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. And now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse was born David. And what a beautiful story. And as we take a look at this, one of the things, well, actually, there's three things that we're going to look at as we put this all together. The first thing that we see in this uh, first verse, and it says volumes, really, of this relationship that they have with one another, and that is that there's a need for marriage. In this first, in this first uh, section of Scripture, verse uh, 13, it states volumes about the need for marriage, not only then, but in our culture today. Now, I'm sure that many of us have heard the jokes or stories about the difficulties that often are part of marriage. And, and like comedians such as Rodney Dangerfield have made a career out of little lines like, take my wife, please take my wife. You know, and, and little jokes like that. Another man once said that the marriage is like a three-ring circus. That first there's the engagement ring, then there's the wedding ring, and then there's what? The suffering. And, uh, you know, there's little jokes like that, just little shots, you know, just to kind of do it. But, but, you know, you hear jokes like that, but all jokes aside, the truth of the matter is, I like what one guy said. He said, you know, the truth of the matter of marriage is this. He said that, you know, marriage is a lot like military service. There's a whole lot of complaining going on, but there's still a whole lot of folks that keep re-enlisting. Interesting, huh? And you say, well, why? You know, think about that. There are a whole lot of folks who re-enlist. And the question that I have is why? And the answer is very simple. 
because there is a need for marriage. And we're going to see that in this relationship between Boaz and Ruth. There's a need for marriage. And the first need that, they, that, that we need to take a look at is this. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. The first thing that we need to be reminded of in this whole need for marriage is that oftentimes we forget. But the first thing is this. There is a need on our part for intimate fellowship with another human being. There is a need on our part for intimate fellowship with another human being. Call it fellowship, call it companionship, call it whatever you want. But the reality of it is, is the reason people keep re-enlisting is because there is a deep-seated need within us to have an intimate companionship and a companionship and relationship that will be for all of our lives while we're here on earth. It's a commitment that goes beyond, well, you know, that's a simple thing of, well, you know, why get married? In a culture like ours today, why get married? Marriages are falling apart, 50% of marriage end of divorce. And you hear all this stuff, and it's like, well, why get married? You know, why not just live together? Why not just, you know, why, why, why can't we just love each other and blah, 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 blah? Well, the reality of all of this is this. Hey, if you love someone, you'll be willing to make a commitment to them. And that intimate fellowship that you have or companionship with another person is because you know that they are committed to you and you are committed to them. And there's a basis of trust. There's a foundation that's laid there of intimacy where you can share with one another, be a part of each other's lives. And we take a look at this. And Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. She didn't become his companion, so to speak, as we call it today. Well, this is my companion. This is my uh, live-in. This is my oh, mistress. It's like, oh, I just told a story today that maybe this kind of relates to it, but there was a guy in his hospital and his wife was sick and it looked like she was going to pass away. And as they were talking back and forth, she said, hey, when I die, um, uh, are you going to get remarried again? And he said, well, yeah, probably so, you know, because they say that people that are happily married are, are really interested in getting married again right away. She said, oh, okay. Well, she said, well, when I die, I mean, what would you, if you get married, would you actually use our, our same bedroom? He goes, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, what's, it's there, you know, it's paid for. I mean, what, you know, that guy. <clears throat> she goes, well, I mean, like, when, when, I, when I die, would you actually, like, have her drive my car? And he said, well, yeah, they're both paid for, and there's two of them, and you got yours, and I got mine, and there's no sense in letting it waste, and... She said, well, when I die, would you let her even use my golf clubs? And he said, no, she couldn't because she's left-handed. <laughs> oh! Hey! Oh! Oh, hey, I, I'm gonna, hey, with the guy who gave me that story on the way in today, please stand up. Oh, hey. But you know what I'm saying. Hey, you know, he, he, she became his wife. And we need to recognize and understand that that's the kind of relationship that we're talking about here. You know, after all, it was God who said, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. And, and the problem, his solution to the problem was that he would create or make a helpmeet for him. A person that would compliment him. A person that would balance him out. A person that would be intimately familiar with him more than anybody else and could share those intimate details that only a husband and wife know about each other and can help and confront one another. We need to look at this as we understand that, you know, there's a need for marriage and the, and the greatest primary need that we have is for intimate fellowship with another person. You know, I think of Ruth and Boaz. And I mean, can you imagine? I mean, Ruth and Boaz finally were going to get married. 
this love affair had been brewing and this relationship was there and the emotions was there and, you know, and, and Boaz wanted to protect her and provide for her and, 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 you know, and Ruth claimed her, him as a redeemer and it's like now finally the day came when they would spend the rest of their life together. And man, that's an exciting day. And we've all been to weddings and we've seen people who, man, it was like the culmination of many months of, of, of being together and dating and all that goes along with it. And it's like today's the day and it's a culmination of all of it and it's a public acknowledgement. Man, this is good stuff. The problem, though, is this. How many of us who are married today, that are here today, that are hearing my voice, are buying into the lie that you'd be better off sometimes by yourself? Isn't that sad? The longer that you're married, the more we're bombarded with messages that say you really don't even need each other. It would be better if you were by yourself. It's such a hassle, blah, 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 blah. And all I want to do today is to challenge you as we look at this couple and look at their relationship to ask the same question. Hey, do you realize what a blessing it is from God? to have an intimate companion and fellowship with another human being that God says takes care of that need and, and the problem of loneliness in our life? I would just challenge you to think about the fact that, you know what? When you look at your spouse today, realize that your spouse is a gift from God to meet that need in your life so that you will not be lonely, but you have companionship and fellowship with another human being. It's a beautiful picture. And it's also to be a picture of God's love and consistency in our life. Companionship for a lifetime. I believe that many people have a problem with their relationship with God because there are not, there, there are not very many earthly or human relationships that reinforce this truth and this truth alone. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when God made a commitment to redeem you, when you claim Christ as your Redeemer, then He who began that work in you will complete it until the day that Jesus comes again or until the day that He calls you home. I believe that many people struggle with their relationship with God and all these subjects of eternal security and can a person lose their salvation and once you're redeemed, can you be unredeemed and be taken back? I believe that the reason for that is very simple. We do not have enough earthly relationships that reinforce what God says is true of his relationship with us. And marriage was to be a picture of that in our lives so that we can see what a commitment is for a lifetime and for all of eternity. God loves you, and when he redeems you, he does it for time and all eternity, and there's no going back. It's a done deal. And the quicker that we resolve that issue, the more, uh, the more abundance that we'll have and the more joy and peace that we'll have in our life and our relationship with God. And how is that to be reinforced? Through marriage. That's how it was supposed to be reinforced. That's why the church is like a bride and pictured as a bride. And that's why we need to recognize and understand that this need for marriage is founded on this principle of intimate fellowship for a lifetime. The second thing that we see also as we look at this, it says, is that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. Well, that doesn't get much simpler than that. And that's the reality of, you know what, marriage, there's a need for marriage to provide complete fulfillment of all of our physical desires. Not only is it to provide a fellowship or an intimate fellowship with another human being, but it's also provide complete fulfillment of all of our physical desires. 
We need to recognize and understand it. Now, there's many people in our culture who will say, hey, you know what? But we can have intimacy in our relationship, and we can have physical desires that are met, and we don't have to get married. But the problem is this. That's not our option. What God says is that if you have this physical desire for another person, in 1 Corinthians 6 and also verse 7, in fact, you got your Bibles, turn to it and look at it real quick, because this has a lot to do with what we see in front of us. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about sexual immorality or pleasing, your ways in, pleasing yourself in ways that aren't pleasing to God. Uh, and in, in chapter 7, verses uh, 1 through 3, we find a very simple answer to this whole problem. It says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual intercourse with a woman. That's what chapter 6 is all about. He says, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. And as we go on, we see this instruction here, and basically here's the, 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 the rule of thumb. How do you know if you're designed by God to be married, or that you have the need for marriage? Simple. If you are in a relationship with another person of the opposite sex, and you have the urge to merge, as clean as I can put it. <laughs> then you are designed by God for marriage. Now, do you realize there are some people who are designed by God to be single? Now, some of you are thinking, you mean there are people in this world that have no desire to have a sexual intimate relationship with a member of the opposite sex? What I would say to you is, you're obviously not one of those people. See what I'm saying? Now, if you were one of those people that were designed by God to be single, and the Bible talks about that, then you'd say, yeah, I know. Um, that's me. I have no desire. And usually, you know, people that are gifted for singleness like that usually have a real hard time with their family. <laughs> because like, hey, now, what's up with this? And it's like, hey, I just don't have any desire to get married. I don't have any desire. Well, you know, are you a little... What's going on, you know? No, I just don't have any desire at all in that area. Well, okay, well, God gifted that person to be that way, and, it's not, and there's nothing wrong with that. I and mean, we need to respect that and understand that as well. But if you have an urge to merge, then God says, get married. Because if you want to experience that physical intimacy, the only way God can bless you is within the parameters of the confines of marriage. And he makes it very clear for people who have the urge to be with a member of the same sex, he says, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Very clear. Not wife to wife, husband to husband, whatever you want to call it. Hey, it, it's heterosexual and that's designed by God. And we'll see why in a second. But as we look at this, we need to recognize and understand something that first of all, there's a need for marriage because there's a need for intimate fellowship with another person. There's a need for marriage because within marriage, there'll be complete fulfillment of sexual desires. And that's also our responsibility, and you see in verse 4 of chapter 7 of uh, 1 Corinthians, that it's our responsibility as a spouse to meet our spouse's physical needs, that that is our responsibility. And if we don't do that, we're selfish, and we need to recognize that and understand that. And that's what we're supposed to do. And the reason for it is if we don't meet that need, then temptation will come into that relationship, and there'll be problems. And so we need to recognize that that's part of our responsibility. Also, God says, hey, they were both naked, speaking of Adam and Eve, and they were unashamed. That there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no fear. It was a beautiful relationship. It's designed by God and it's protected by God. It's sanctified by God and it's blessed by God. 
And as we'll see, the third part that we need to look at is there was also a need for fruitfulness in the bearing of children. It says that he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. Would you stop for a second and listen to that? And the Lord enabled her to conceive. You know, what blew me away as I was going through that was, I'm thinking, you know, Ruth and Malon, I don't know how long they were married, but I know that they, they lived for 10 years in Moab. And for 10 years in Moab, part of the time, Ruth was married to her husband, the, the unhealthy dude. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know what? And she, she could never have a child. Well, maybe it's because of that unhealthy guy. But it also could have been the reality that, you know what? Moab was God's garbage can. And when she returned with Naomi back to Bethlehem, she returned back into the favor of God. Because Naomi already said, hey, you know, we've been, we, we've been uh, experiencing the consequences of our disobedience. My husband died. My sons died. We had a mess down here. We were in disobedience to God. Now we've gone back into obedience with God. And you know what blows me away? Almost instantaneously. I mean, from the time they returned to Bethlehem, the house of praise and worship, or bread and worship, by the time they returned to Bethlehem, from the time of the barley harvest to the wheat harvest was six weeks. From the time that Ruth went to the threshing floor to claim Boaz as her redeemer, to the time that Boaz went into the city gate to finalize her redemption, from the time that the redemption was final to the time they got married, from the time they got married to what we read here to where now God enabled Ruth to conceive, we're talking about maybe a total period of time of six to eight total weeks. And yet when they were in Moab, they were barren. Listen to this. Many of us try to get the blessings of God and we do it by being in disobedience to God and we can't duplicate his blessings. When we forsake what we're doing that's wrong before God, and we confess our sin or agree with what God says is wrong, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, he forgives us, restores us into fellowship or into favor with God, and then God, as if he wanted to, could instantaneously bless us the way we've been trying to get his blessing on our own for years and years and years and years. You cannot get the blessings of God when you're living in disobedience. The simple matter of the fact is this. God blesses those who walk in faithful obedience with Him on a daily basis. Stop trying to struggle for the blessings of God by being disobedient. Confess what you're doing. Return to Him. And He can bless you just like that if He chooses to do it. Man, this is a principle that we cannot miss as we look at the life of Ruth and Boaz. Instantly... It was God who enabled her to conceive. Man, that's some good stuff. Not only is it good stuff, but it even gets better. Because as I'm looking at all of this, not only did she conceive, but she gave birth to what? A son! That's some good stuff there. And there's nothing wrong with girls, but don't forget the whole purpose of this redemption was to be able to promote and save the, the lineage of Elimelech in the nation of Israel. 
And they needed a boy to be able to restore his name for all of time in the, in the nation of Israel. So it was pretty special to have a boy. Now, check this out. And they didn't even have, a, they didn't have sonograms or anything. <laughs> Listen to this. She was pregnant, and they had to wait it out, like some of us, you know, you know some of you, the older people. You had to wait it out. You had to wait it out, and there you were. It was time to give birth, and man, it was like excitement going on, and you're standing there, and you're, you're watching, 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 watching. Here it comes. What do we got? It's a weenie. Yeah! <laughs> this is great. This is great. There it is. That's what we've been looking for. That's what we needed right there. That little part right there. And the reason I, I know how exciting that is, I just had, a, a, we have a friend who calls us this past, what do you want me to call it? Well, it's like, they, they called this past week and, uh, and they just went to the doctors, they had a sonogram, man, and he was so excited. And it was like, hey, just thought I'd call you and tell you how the sonogram went. And you already knew. Hey, hey, hey. So uh, what are you having? Well, what do you think we're having? Well, I know what you're having now. You're playing that game with me. You're having a boy. Oh, yeah, we're having a boy. Man, he was so excited. He plays football, and I was like, a boy. <laughs> this is great. We're having a boy. You know, and, and I'm thinking, man, you know, and, and to, to put reality all this, I mean, can you imagine there's Boaz? He's in the delivery room, you know, out by the tree, out under near the, where the cows and stuff are. And, and, you know, and she's laying against the hay pile or the wheat pile or the barley pile. And, you know, it's not exactly a sterile location, but hey, it worked then, right? And uh, so all of a sudden he's going, it's a boy. It is a boy. That's good stuff. I don't know what they, they didn't hand out cigars and stuff. I don't know what they handed out. Uh, you know, like rolled barley or something, you know. But, but they were excited, and they were excited for a reason. And it was like, man, God gave her, enabled her the ability to conceive. And you know what? And we can't forget this. It's not you. It's not me. When God blesses, he's the one that blesses. You understand that? Man, you know, so many times we put pressure on ourselves to think that somehow we've got to do what only God can do. And if God wants to bless us, he's going to bless us. And look at the nature of the blessings. I love this as we look at this and as we see in uh, Ruth chapter 4. Look at verses 14 through 16, which is just incredible. Read, read, the women said to Naomi, hey, praise be to the Lord who has this day not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. It says, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and, to, and cared for him. Look at the source of all the blessings. Not only does Ruth and Boaz recognize it, but also all the people in their life realize what a blessing it is. It's no coincidence that this woman can conceive as quickly as she did. It's no coincidence that not only did she conceive to have a child, but the first child that they have is a boy. Man, this is no coincidence. You know, the world looks at life and everything's a coincidence. Or boy, you fell in it. Or boy, you were lucky. You were in the right place at the right time. Hey, let me tell you something. There's no such thing as coincidence. God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And we need to recognize, as they did, when you're blessed by God, don't make the mistake of thinking it's a coincidence, but stop and just thank Him. That's all we got to do. We need to become people who thank God and to praise Him for all the blessings in our life. I'll tell you what, if we would just thank God more often, we would complain a whole lot less. 
If we would just praise God for everything and become people who have an attitude of appreciation and thankfulness, we would stop complaining to each other, we'd stop complaining about work, we'd stop complaining about our health, we'd stop complaining about this, that, and the other thing, and our finances and everything. We'd stop complaining about everything, and we would just praise God for the blessings that He gives us. Because when we focus on that, all the rest of this stuff pales and dims in comparison. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you just praised God for anything? We need to recognize and understand that praise and worship is an intimate part of our relationship with God. And you know what, and, and let me just interject this thought. Many of you like to come whenever you like to get here. And, and we all appreciate that and we understand that. Now, we have never tried to duplicate this or make this into, quote, a worship service that would compete with the worship services that take place here at Calvary. But one thing that I want to mention at this particular point is that for those of you who come for different reasons, some come to worship God, some come to have coffee and visit with friends, some come to catch up on stuff that's going on, some come just for the Bible study portion of our time. Whatever the reason that you come, and, that, and that's between you and the Lord, and it really doesn't matter. But all I would say is this. If there's someone here that's leading praise and worship, and there's singing going on and praising going on and worship going on, I would just ask that you respect the people that come to worship and praise God, if you want to visit and talk, go ahead out in the foyer outside and visit and talk until you feel like coming in. But don't miss the fact that, you know what? God loves when we worship and we praise Him. And we thank Him for who He is. And so I don't want to get nasty and tell people you got to come in and praise the Lord. Because, you know what? Most people that you tell to praise the Lord, you can tell that they're praising the Lord. Yeah, I'm praising the Lord. Okay, okay. How do you do that? Hey, you know, you stay outside and visit and do whatever you want to do. But for those who want to come inside, come on inside and praise and worship the Lord. That's all that I'm saying. And so, you know, it's just a matter of respect for one another. And if you get here late, I appreciate you all on the balcony that come late and you go straight to the balcony. I like that. I appreciate that because you're not disrupting everything that's going on down below. So, you know, that's all. And if you have to leave early, then sit toward the back and leave and go out. You know, it's just, it's just respecting one another and understanding that we all come for different things and different reasons. And no one's right. No one's wrong. It's just the way that it is. But I would say this. It sure wouldn't hurt to become people that would praise God more often and complain a lot less. Amen? All right. The second thing that we look at is this. Look at the scope of all these blessings. The source of the blessings is the Lord. The scope of the blessings is this. Number one, hey, you know what? God hasn't left you without a kinsman redeemer. And as we read this, we realize that, he, that he's talking about the baby that was born. Not about Boaz at this point. And the reason that we know that is because it says, May he become famous throughout Israel, and he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So really what we're talking about at this point is the child that was born, and, and, she has, and Ruth has given birth to this child. And I love this as we take a look at this because it's, it's a, as we see this, it's a privilege... It's a privilege Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. It is a privilege to care for children. It is a privilege to care for grandchildren. We need to be reinforced in our life today that children are not a burden from the Lord, but children are a blessing from the Lord. 
and we need to treat our children and, and our friends' children and children in general with great respect and dignity, knowing that they are a blessing from God and it's a privilege to have them in our life and to be responsible to nurture them, to raise them, to train them in the ways that they should go before the Lord and that they're a blessing, they're not a burden. It's a privilege. Man, you don't think Naomi was blown away and found this to be a privilege after everything she's gone through in life and to be handed this grandson? She was jacked up, man, and ready to take care of him. Bring him over here. I can't wait. You got to go go out to dinner or something. I'll watch him. This is good stuff. I've been waiting a long time for this. And what they recognized was that, you know what? And if she wasn't as old as she was, if Naomi hadn't been as old as she was, then Naomi probably would have been the one at the threshing floor that night claiming Boaz as her redeemer. But because she was beyond childbearing age, she had allowed Ruth to take that responsibility. And Ruth did just that. So she was excited to be a part of it. Not only that, but these women said, hey, this woman, this, this daughter-in-law of yours is better than seven sons. So how's that? When Naomi came back from Moab, she didn't even say anything about Ruth. All she said was, I went away full, I come back empty, you can call me bitter now because, man, my life's in the pits. And she didn't even say, but I got this great daughter-in-law. She didn't say anything about her. But now the women say, this daughter-in-law of yours came through, baby. She's better than seven sons, which was the ultimate blessing. And she was blown away by all of this. And I love that because as we see this, they recognized and understood what was going on. Now, literally, it's talking about a son, but it's actually, obviously, her grandson. And uh, as we go through and look at this next section, we're going to see that they named this child. And as we go through, we'll see that it says, And the women living there said, in the naming of the child and also the family line, says, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Now, Obed means worshiper or servant. So they gave him a name. He was a servant. He was a, worship, he was a worshiper of the living and true God, that he would be a man that would grow up to love the Lord. And although he was no blood relative of Naomi, he was legally her grandson, and she treated him as such, and she cared for him, and she loved him as such. And what's incredible as we take a look at this, undoubtedly this little servant, as he grew up, became grandpa, grandma's little boy and took the place of her deceased husband and her deceased sons and now she's got this grandson who would grow up to be a servant of, of the grandmother and because of him she would have hope now and she'd have a reason to go on with her life and she had no hope when she returned. She was barren at one point point. now she's blessed. She was miserable at one point when she was out of fellowship with God and now she's back into fellowship with God and her life has purpose and meaning and man let me just say something to you if you're not living right with God and you're not living obedience with them then you know exactly what it's like to be out in the wilderness and out in the barren country. And you know what? All you got to do is forsake it and return back home because he wants to forgive you and restore you and give you a purpose and a reason and a hope for living again. You can't have that as a child of God unless you're in fellowship with God. That's just a truth and a reality that we can't get around. And so as we see this, this is what's happening. Now we come to a section of scripture that if you're like me, you wonder, oh man, what are we going to do with this? For many years, listen to this, for many years, I would get to a section of scripture like this, and I'd go, you know what I mean? Just kind of whiz right through it. That's the difference between Bible reading and Bible study. You just kind of just, oh, and then here's a whole bunch of people that are mentioned. Okay, great. Now, the problem as we look at this, you see it says, and they named him Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse and the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Menadab, Menadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Sam, Sam the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. There. And you go, okay, now what does that have to do with anything? 
And I used to read through the genealogies and go, oh, great, the genealogy part's coming up. <laughs> no, I didn't. I've been, I just like you, it's like, okay, that just means something to somebody. And then I heard a couple tell a story about a true story. They were in a foreign country and they were, they were translating the New Testament. And they had translated the book of John, and there was like no interest on the part of even the translators, nor the people that would read it. There was just like no interest at all. And these people were trying to figure out some way to have a cultural bridge that they would be able to cross so there'd be better communication as to what was going on, as far as what the Bible had to say. And so they translate the book of John, and it's like people, ah, there's just no interest. So then what was next on their, on their agenda was to translate the book of Matthew. And the translator's going, the book of Matthew? Oh no, well if you know anything about the book of Matthew, the first chapter is nothing but genealogy. And so they started to go through this whole genealogy of all these names of all these people. And the translator, all of a sudden you could see this excitement on the part of the local translator. And then you could see like excitement on the part of the people that were in the room. And there was this, just this hushed, deathly silence. And the people that were, were, were responsible for the translation team went, what's the matter? Why is everybody so quiet? And the translator that was helping him in the local language said, you mean all this time that you've been here, that everything you've been telling us is a true story? And he said, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, we didn't know that this was true until you started to mention all the names of the people and where they're from and who they were related to. We didn't know this was a true story. And the tra this guy was blown away because you know what led these people into a relationship with God? The genealogy. They went, they went like, whoa, this is a true story. These were real people that lived in real places at a real time and they were related to people and we could actually trace who they were all the way back to their ancestors. These are real people. And it's like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that. Well, we didn't know that until we got to this. And so what I want to do is kind of share with you that this is a true story about real people that will change our lives forever if we just take a moment and understand what God's trying to get across. Let me just give you a quick history lesson. It says that Perez was the father of Hezron. Perez was, a, was, was a, the son of Judah through Tamar, who was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. And if you read Genesis chapter 38, it's a great story. I'll just give you the, 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 the kind of the summation of it. But Judah had a son, and uh, his name was Ur. And Ur married Tamar, and uh, Ur died because he was wicked before God. In fact, the Bible says that God killed him. So there you go. And uh, so because of this law that we have of the Leverite marriage, the next son, remember what we're talking about here in this whole study, was the next son was in line to have to marry Tamar. Well, the next son goes to marry Tamer, but he doesn't really want to marry Tamer, but he likes the benefits of having a physical relationship with her, so he would never complete the act so that she could ever conceive a child. And the Bible says what he was doing was wrong before God, and so God killed him too. So Tamer comes to Judah, her father-in-law, and says, Hey, you know, you got one more son, and I want to claim him as being the one who would redeem my husband's name, and I want to marry him. Well, Judah says, I'm not giving you him. You're kind of bad luck. <laughs> Same thing again. You killed two of them already, and I only got one left. And so he's like, I'm not going to do it. But he lied to her and said, okay, well, when he gets older, then we'll go ahead and do it. But you go back home and live with your father. And when he gets older and he's old enough to do it, then you can come back and claim him. But he had no intention of doing that. 
So anyway, Tamer decides, hey, you know what? I got to take matters into my own hands. And so she goes out and poses as a prostitute and she lures Judah, her father-in-law, into a sexual relationship with her because she wants to protect her husband's name and her line throughout the, the nation of Israel as well. And so Judah has sex with his daughter-in-law, but doesn't know it. Don't ask me to explain that. <laughs> they had coverings on and all kind of stuff, you know? And, 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 you know, and they didn't have electricity, so it's probably dark. And, uh, <laughs> and so anyway, that's what he does, right? And so he gives her his cord and staff and a couple of things as a down payment for the fact that he's going to go back and get her a goat and uh, to give her a goat for the, se the sexual union that they just had. Well, you know, that was good. I'll get you a goat. So he goes and he goes to get her a goat. But when he goes to send the person to pay her with the goat, uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't she doesn't take the goat. And uh, so what happens is, is that, you know, he says, hey, you know what, this prostitute uh, who I had sex with, you know, now she's going around saying that she's pregnant. And then the kicker of all of it is, and you can imagine Judah's surprise when she goes to Judah and says, look, I don't want the goat. I want you. And he's there, but wait a minute, you can't have me. And you're just a prostitute. And she said, oh, excuse me, huh? surprise. And says, hey, not only was it me, but here's the stuff that you gave me as a down payment to hold. And uh, hey, buddy, guess what? I'm having your baby. And uh, that's the way it worked. So this is all a bunch of deception, right? Well, here's what happens after that. So she is pregnant and she's going to have twins. And so like typical, she's going to have twin boys. And even in the womb, these guys are competitive. So when it comes time to give birth, the one guy sticks his hand out first. Says, hey, I won. Because he must have known that the firstborn son is the one who gets all the blessings, right? So he stuck his hand up first, kind of like crossing the line. I won. Said, no, because he was breached and the other one came out first. And so the other one was the firstborn son. And the one who came out with his hand came out with a little red bracelet on because the nursemaid, when the hand came out, tied the hand a little thing around her so that they would know who was who and who came out first. So the one with the thing on his hand wasn't first, it was actually second. Okay. Now, here's the cool thing about all of this, all right? You ready for this? And, and Perez was the one who ended up coming out first, even though the other one thought he beat him by sticking his hand out across the finish line, but that didn't count because your whole body had to come out because that was the rules those days, and they had a photo finish, and that's the only way they could do it. So the one was disqualified for sticking his hand out there. So anyway, so, so that, that's what happens. So, but here's the cool thing. Listen, listen to this. Don't miss this. Here's the neat thing about it. So Judah and Judah's brothers, if you remember them, were the guys who sold their brother Joseph into slavery, okay? Now, the reason they sold him into slavery is because Joseph went around telling their, his brothers that one day they would have to answer to him and that God would bless him and elevate him above them. Well, they didn't like that plan of God's, so what they decided to do was, well, we can sell you into slavery, then we won't have to worship and bow down to you, and God will have to come up with a new plan because we just screwed up his original plan. Well, as we all know, that's not what happened. Ultimately, in Egypt, his whole family goes and they bow down before Joseph, who was elevated to second command of all of Egypt, and that was God's plan to begin with. Here's the cool thing. This was God's plan. And even though man tried to mess it up, as man always tries to mess up God's plan, what we learn from the book of Ruth is this, that God's plan will not be thwarted by man. You can't stop it. Because no matter what move you make, God already got the counter move planned before you even made your move against him that you thought was original. He already knew about it. 
So what's the whole point of this? The point of this is this. As we've gone through the book of Ruth, I have learned this, that God is in control of everything. Of everything. The field that Ruth goes to, Boaz's field. What a coinky dinky She chooses him as redeemer. Oh, another coincidence? I don't think so. God's plan will not be thwarted by man. And as we go through this and understand it and try to wrap it all up, we look at this and we see this genealogy and we see that Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram and Ram the father of Aminadad and Aminadad the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon and Salmon the father of Boaz and Boaz the father of Obed and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse's the father of David and ultimately through the line of David comes our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know what it tells me? You don't skip over the genealogy because it's boring, but if you stop and if we got that much information just out of Paris, think of how much more we learn out of every person that God has used throughout human history to accomplish his plans. What is the plan of God? The plan of God is to redeem man, to buy back that which was lost. And God's plan will not be thwarted by Satan and his demons or people or anybody else that God's plan will come to fruition. When we started this whole study, I told you and I used as an illustration the whole idea of stamps being redeemed at a redemption center. Do you realize that there were a whole bunch of stamps that were lost forever because the person that had those stamps just never took them back and chose to redeem them? That's just the truth. What we need to understand and recognize is this, is that God's redemption center, and this is his plan, his redemption center is the cross of Jesus Christ. You and I were lost when Adam sinned, and we can go back through the genealogy and see how we're all tied into him. But we are lost the moment that he sinned before God. And God's plan from eternity past is that he would work to buy back that which was lost, which was all of us. And the only thing that we have to do is choose to go to that redemption center, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, and claim him as our Redeemer. And when we do that, we will find forgiveness of sin. We will find uh, uh, protection from the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. When we go to the cross, we will find peace with God. We will find peace with ourselves. We will find peace with our fellow human beings. We will find an abundant life. We will find an eternal life with God forever and ever. Amen. We will have a purpose and a reason to live. And the only thing that we have to do in our responsibility is just to believe what God says about Jesus Christ. Folks, it doesn't get any clearer than this. And what a beautiful picture of redemption as we look at Boaz and Ruth. Jesus Christ wants to redeem us because he's motivated by great love for us. He despised the shame. He endured the suffering for the joy that was set before him, which was our redemption. And all that we have to do is just claim him as redeemer and thank him for it and praise him for it. It says, to as many as received him, to him they give the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And you know what? And it's mind-boggling and it's just amazing and it doesn't make any sense, but it's true. And I would just challenge you if you're here today and you don't know what day you received and claimed Jesus Christ as your kinsman redeemer, then do it today because you can't make a decision that important in your life without knowing the day that you made it because it comes from the heart and it's a day where you sell out and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins and I claim you as my redeemer. 
What a beautiful picture the book of Ruth gives us of the love of God that we find in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for this study. We just uh, thank you for the love of God that we find in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God, what a wonderful grace and what a beautiful favor. And it's mind-boggling as it was to Ruth. Who are we to find such favor from you? And God, you tell us that it's because of your love for us that you're motivated to redeem us. You tell us it's by your grace and your grace alone that we're saved. And it's a gift from you so that none of us will ever be able to boast before you. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But Lord, we just claim Jesus as our Redeemer. And we thank you that the work that, has be, had, that he has begun in us will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.